Our scripture this morning is Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. You focus your attention on God's Word this morning. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me, and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory, by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The British Baking Show. Anybody watch that? Like that show? Yeah, that's a good show, right? I like that show too. My wife and my daughter love uh, cooking shows. They watch a variety of those shows. And, uh, you know, we, uh, as Americans, we love food. I love food. We love food. We have an entire network uh, dedicated to food, right? There's a food network. Food is a big deal in our culture, in our lives. It's also a big deal in the Bible. In fact, there's this wonderful little book that I received as a gift. You want to pop that slide up there, Zach? That'd be great. It's called Eve's Apple to the Last Supper, Picturing Food in the Bible. This was given to me by a dear friend, and I treasure it, from Boydell Press right here on Mount Hope Avenue. Excellent book. But it shows the story of the Bible, the story of redemptive history from Eve's apple to the Last Supper, and arguably we can go to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Food is integral to the Bible, to its story. It's a big deal. I thought about one time preaching a sermon series, the great Bible baking show, just talking about how significant meals are. Obviously, we're doing that this morning. We're engaging in this very significant eating event, this meal together in the Lord's Supper. It's a big deal in the Bible. And so perhaps it should not surprise us that food found its way into the big seven, into the seven capital vices, the seven deadly sins. It's one of the big seven gluttony, is one of the seven capital vices. And in our time together this morning, I want to look at that particular vice. And we'll do that together using the same methodology we've used throughout this. We'll first try to define what we're talking about when we're talking about gluttony. We'll secondly try to demonstrate that through some examples and, and then perhaps talk a little bit about why it's harmful. And then we will deal with it. We'll talk about how we respond to this as believers. So we'll define it, we'll demonstrate it, we'll deal with it. Let's start with defining this big seven known as gluttony. And defining it is relatively easy on one level. That's really the easy part, right? The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines gluttony as excess in eating or drinking. It's pretty simple, and we are all kind of acquainted with that definition. Let me give you another one that fleshes it out a bit. This is from Kevin Vost in his book, Gluttony is an Inordinate, Unreasonable Desire for Food and Drink. Aquinas uh, put it this way, he defined it as an immoderate appetite in eating and drinking. Pretty straightforward. Some have thought about fleshing that out a little bit more, giving it more shape. 
And so let me give you another definition. This came from Gregory the Great. He broke it down into five categories, that gluttony was, uh, could be further divided into these five categories, that it's eating too daintily, too sumptuously, too hastily, too greedily, or too much. And Rebecca DeYoung, in her book on the uh, capital vices, she writes uh, about a modern kind of ap um, translation of that ancient uh, one from Gregory the Great called FRESH, this acronym FRESH. The gluttony is eating too fastidiously, ravenously, excessively, sumptuously, and hastily. Those are some of the definitions. And that really is the easy part, right? We can kind of get there. You probably walked in with a knowledge of that. Gluttony is about some type of excess related to food and drink in our lives. Not necessarily just consumption, as you can tell by eating fastidiously. We'll talk a little bit about that. But it's some type of excess regarding food and drink in our lives. Defining gluttony is the easy part. The hard part is, who cares? You know? Have you ever thought about that with this? Why is this a sin? Why do we care about eating, and whether somebody maybe eats too fastidiously, ravenously, excessively, sumptuously, and hastily? Why do we care? Why is food and our consumption of food and drink, why, why is it in this category? William Willimon puts it this way, gluttony is an odd sin. It has none of the tragic potential of pride, none of the sinister quality of avarice, nor the potential for righteous indignation that is enjoyed by practitioners of wrath. Why is this a sin? In her book entitled Gluttony, Francine Prose put it this way. She said, who in the world decided that gluttony was a sin? Whom exactly does it harm except the glutton himself? Why do you care? You know, why is this, of all things? Don't you find it kind of odd? In this kind of pantheon of the big seven, we find food and eating in there. And I find it particularly odd when I think of a couple of other reasons. There's a couple of reasons why I think it's odd, I should say. And one of them has to do with Jesus. I mean, if you know anything about Jesus, he was kind of, and uh, forgive the maybe a bit of irreverence, but he was kind of a party animal. He liked to eat. He liked to drink. He liked to be with people. One of the striking things about the gospel accounts is how often we find Jesus in the setting of a meal, doing something with food. And he was so well known for this, of course, as you know. What did they accuse him of being? Oh, a glutton and a wine-bibber. It's right in the Scriptures, Matthew 11, verse 19. And I love this. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Isn't that an interesting phrase? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, Jesus was accused of gluttony. And there must have been a kernel of truth, right? He, he, there must have been something where people, oh, yeah, yeah, I can see that, right? There must have been something. He liked to eat. He liked to be with people. It was John the Baptist and his disciples. They were the teetotalers. They were the abstainers. Jesus, he liked a good meal. He liked a good drink. He, he, you know, Jesus and his boys, they enjoyed a good party. From the wedding at Cana, to the feeding of the 5,000, to the Last Supper, to the road to Emmaus, to the wedding supper of the Lamb, you can eat your way through Jesus' life. 
There's even a book on that, Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel. It's just about all these meals, all these things Jesus is doing at table with people. So given Jesus' penchant for eating and drinking and enjoying those things with people, gluttony seems like an odd thing for me to be wagging my blue finger about, right? To be talking about as, as a sin. That's the first reason I think it's odd, because of Jesus. But the other reason I think it's odd is because of all of the issues in our culture around body shaming and eating disorders. It seems like talking about gluttony, that it's fraught with problems. As a preacher, do I really want to be lecturing people about their eating habits, right? Is this what I want to be doing from the pulpit? And then if you really think about it, if you think about our culture, this really struck me as I was doing this sermon. Most of the big seven, like our culture, holds as virtues rather than vice, right? I mean, we kind of glorify avarice, lust, uh, you know, wrath, all those type of things. We avarice, vainglory, sloth, spiritual sloth, right? All of those things are kind of like virtues, not vices, but the one vice that our culture still condemns is gluttony. I found that kind of interesting. I mean, if you don't have the right body type in America, if you're overweight or obese, you're fair target for condemnation. We hail the vegetarian, the vegan, the organic food eater, the properly sourced food person, the paleo and the keto diets. We herald foodies. We even ascribe virtue to these people. Right? Do you ever talk to somebody? Well, I'm eating this way for a sustainable planet. No, I'm eating right. There's a bit of that going on, right? That we take this so seriously. But somebody that's overweight or their BMI is a bit out of skew, well, they're a sinner at least in our cultural terms. They're a person worthy of ridicule, of shame. Most jokes are kind of off-limits of any type. It's hard to tell a joke, but you can still tell jokes about people's weight. William Willimon said this about this kind of cultural discrimination or bias against uh, people with a, a BMI out of line as far as we're considered. He said, a recent study shows that 11% of Americans would abort a fetus if they were told that the fetus had a tendency toward obesity. Elementary school children say that they are more judgmental toward the fat kid in class than they are toward a bully. Studies have shown that an overweight person is at a distinct disadvantage in being hired for a job when compared with someone who is not overweight. You all know this, right? Our culture is quite harsh in condemning gluttony. We worship at the idol of thinness. There's even people who take pride in it, you know? Like, like, I always felt that weird. It's kind of like height in a way. Your, your weight is somewhat related to height, right? I know that there's a variety of factors and behavioral is one of them, but there's also physiological and genetic factors going on here. There's things about your metabolism that you can't control in many ways. I once had a colleague who was always so proud that uh, her, her daughter was so tall. And I'm like, great. <laughs> it's, like, it's, a, it's not an achievement, right? It's kind of like it's, you know, it's based on, but by, you know, it's based on your genetics. You, you didn't do anything. 
Willimon says, we may have deconsecrated gluttony, but it is still regarded as a serious sin. Just check out the vast dieting section of your local bookstore. That's true. And it even plays out, and Willimon notes this, that we tend to have compassion on people who have eating disorders that lead them to become too thin, right? We have a lot of compassion, cultural compassion for them. But people who have eating disorders that lead them the opposite direction, we often don't have as much compassion for them. I talked a little bit about the definition of gluttony, about, you know, being too fastidious. I like that being included because you get these people who are like, you know, so uh, like caught up in their, what they eat and how they eat and what they're doing and how right it is and all this. That, that is a form, you know, but we don't condemn that in our culture. We almost herald that as a virtue. But someone who maybe eats a bit of, uh, you know, junk food or whatever, they get condemnation. That's why it strikes me kind of odd. And all of this is made worse by the reality that of all the big seven, this is the one you can't really hide, right? You can't hide. I can hide a lot of things from you. I can hide my lust. I can hide my wrath. I can hide a variety of things. But if you have a problem with food, right, or if you have an issue with weight, you can't. It's hard to hide, right? It's right there. It's physical. It's present. Maxie Dunham, in his book, tells a story of a pastor friend who was preaching through the seven deadly sins, and he chose to preach on this one on Labor Day weekend, and he did it on purpose because he didn't want many people in attendance. He knew it would be a low attendance day. <laughs> and the reason he felt that was because of a self-conscious reason that he was 265 pounds. He didn't want to preach. Imagine if I had to preach this sermon to you. And I was 260, right? If I had an issue, like this was, it's a hard thing. And it's right out there for everyone to see. So given the existence of eating disorders, of body shaming, of all the stuff in our culture about it, it seems rather odd to be wagging my finger about gluttony. I mean, who really thinks food is an issue of spiritual import? Does this really matter spiritually? What do you think? I mean, some people, because of that struggle, they decided, well, you know, it's really not gluttony about food. It's gluttony about resources. To try to pitch it a different way. It's gluttony about other things. It's gluttony about fossil fuels and consumer economies and how you know, we're, our gluttonous behavior is leading us to ruin the, the environment. Things, they tried to turn it into something else. Others tried to take it and say, no, it's really about lust. They related gluttony to lust. That it is, this was uh, from uh, Basil the Great. He, he connected like, oh, you know, eating and all of that leads into this kind of bacchanalia, right? You're going to have this kind of crazy orgy kind of thing. And food is related to sex and it's all tied up together. So they tried to make it about something else. But I don't find that persuasive. It's about food. It's ultimately about food and drink. But why should we care about it? And I got to confess to you, I'm not really sure why. But perhaps there's something to this, something ancient that's worth considering for the church today, something here about a connection between how we view food and drink and our spiritual well-being. 
I think the best way to get at that is to demonstrate. So let me go on to point two. Point one one was my longest. We're on point two. Let me demonstrate. Let me give you three examples. And maybe in those examples, we can begin to see the spiritual import that may be here, something worth us gazing into in our lives. So three examples. Let's demonstrate. Two are from the Bible. One is from literature. The first one from the Bible is Esau. And I, want to, I should credit Brian Hedges for helping me uh, uh, with these examples. Uh, the first one is Esau. You remember Esau, son of Isaac, brother of Jacob. Jacob was his mother's favorite. Esau was his father's favorite. Esau expected and was entitled to the blessing of his father. But then this happened. Genesis 25, verses 29 to 34, once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore, he was called Edom. Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The scriptures condemn Esau for that choice, for selling his birthright for a meal, for a pot of stew. Hebrews 12, verse 16, see to it that no one, he's speaking to the church or the preacher of the Hebrews, no one in the church becomes like Esau, an immoral and godless person who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, was what Esau did, was that gluttony? I don't know for sure. It's debatable, but what is clear, he allowed his appetite for food to lead him in the wrong spiritual direction. It drove him away from seeing things of spiritual significance. His appetites led him away from God. Let's take another example. This is the hungry crowd in John 6. John 6 contains John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. And in that account, Jesus speaks about being the bread of life. That's where he says, I am the bread of life, John 6, 35. And in that, Jesus brings this crowd together. They're obviously hungry, and he feeds them in a miraculous manner. But he did that to show them something of spiritual import. He gave them bread, but he wanted them to see that he is the bread of life. And many didn't see it. They missed the spiritual import. They missed the spiritual point. John 6, 26 and 27, Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. You see what happened there? They came to Jesus. They wanted to hear him teach. They got hungry. Jesus fed them. He was trying to teach them about something more important, using this as an object lesson. But they missed the lesson. They missed the spiritual significance because their bellies were full. They were satiated. They were happy. And in many ways, they were just like Esau. They missed the blessing of God over a meal. Their appetites led them in the wrong spiritual direction. Esau, the hungry crowd of John 6. Now let me give you one from literature, and it's an easy one. Maybe even some of you are guessing it. It's Edmund, right? 
Edmund from The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis, where he betrays Aslan, the Jesus figure in the story, and he aligns himself with the White Witch. Now, how did, what captured Edmund? What was it? Turkish Delight. You ever seen Turkish Delight? You ever try it? It's, it's interesting stuff. I'm not sure it would have captured me, <laughs> but I'm sure some people like it. Um, yeah, Turkish Delight. Food. Lewis is a very smart person, very clever, and how he used this ancient thing about gluttony in this story. Here's a little portion. It is dull, son of Adam, to drink without eating, said the queen presently. What would you like best to eat? Turkish delight, please, your majesty, said Edmund. Now listen to this. This is Lewis at his best. While he, Edmund, was eating, the queen kept asking him questions. At first, Edmund tried to remember that it is rude to speak with one's mouth full, but soon he forgot about this and thought only of trying to shovel down as much Turkish delight as he could, and the more he ate, the more he wanted to eat. And here it is. And he never asked himself why the queen should be so inquisitive. You see what he's doing there. Just like with Esau, just like with the crowd, Edmund is missing something because he's being driven by his appetite. He's being directed away from God in the wrong spiritual direction. Those three examples, I think, are trying to get at something here. Now, what is it? I'm not entirely sure. I know it's not about obesity. I know it's not about BMI. I know it's not about body shaming or eating disorders. There's something spiritual here being brought before our eyes. And it's connected with food. It's not physiological. It's something in our souls and our spirits, something about our appetites, something about how our appetites draw us away from God, or at least have the potential to do so. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you, even with tears, their end is destruction. Their God is the belly. I think that's what the medieval church was pointing at with this, that our appetites do reveal something to us about our spiritual well-being. They are important to consider. They are important to think about regardless of your body type or your BMI. So if that's the case... What do we do about it? How do we deal with this? So let's deal with the last point. Let's deal with it. And I have just two quick applications this morning. How can we kick the habit? How do we deal with the vice of gluttony? Let me suggest two ways to deal with it. And one, I'm guessing you're already thinking in your mind. The first one is fasting. Fasting is a way to clear your mind, to control your appetites, to see whether you have a problem with something. Fasting. It is an ancient Christian practice, and it's there for a reason, because it allows us to gain deep spiritual insights. It's a way of putting your attention solely on God, rather than by what drives us every day, the need for food and drink. Robert Mulholland puts it this way, the essence of fasting is the separation of ourselves from something in order to offer ourselves in greater measure to God. Fasting has always been an important part of the Christian tradition, of the Christian life. And it may be you doing something of fasting about something in your life, or maybe it's even become an addiction. Well, you say, well, how do I know if it's an addiction? Well, try fasting from it from a period of time. Can you do it? 
and see what God teaches you in that moment. Think about fasting from food or drink or whatever, particularly in times of need. This is an important part of Christian spiritual discipline and Christian heritage. You want to deal with gluttony? Fast. Learn to do that. The other one is this. Feast. Fasting and feasting. That's how you deal with gluttony. And I know what you're thinking. It seems rather odd, right? In a sermon about gluttony to say that the cure for gluttony is to learn how to feast well. But feasting is just as much a part of the Christian tradition as is fasting. And that shouldn't surprise us. Remember Jesus. Remember his penchant for parties. And uh, he's He's at the wedding at Cana, and he's making good wine there, right? He's celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And there's this huge feast that's set before us in the book of Revelation, the wedding supper of the Lamb. All the imagery around Messiah's kingdom is imagery of abundance. Isaiah 25, 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with the marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. Jesus is not about paucity. Jesus is not about, you know, smallness or miserliness. He's about abundance, and feasting reminds us of that. The same God that warned us not to make our bellies, our God also called his people, commanded them in Deuteronomy 14, 26, he commanded them, spend the money for whatever you wish. Oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, or whatever you desire, and you shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your whole household rejoicing together. You see, feasting, just like fasting, can lead us closer to God because when we feast together and we give thanks to God for the abundance, it is teaching us something about where the good things come from. It teaches us something about the ultimate end of all things in the kingdom when we're with the Messiah at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so when you gather around a table and you celebrate something with feasting, with family, and with friends, it's not just a meal. It's a foreshadowing of the consummation of the kingdom of God. Rightly understood, feasting just like fasting can draw you closer to God and deal with the problem of gluttony. I know it seems contradictory, I know it seems paradoxical, and I must acknowledge I can't totally all resolve it, but I, I think perhaps Paul gives us an insight when he says this in Philippians 4.12. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty, and of being in need. That is wisdom worth pondering. That is the life I think God is calling us to live. To know those two things. The secret of being well fed and of going hungry. Of having plenty and being in need. To learn to feast. To learn to fast. What role should food have in our lives? I'm not entirely sure. But I think there's something there to ponder and to think about and to always remember what Jesus said as we heard this morning. One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
we thank you for the gift of food and drink. We thank you that you did not just make it nourishment for us, but that you made it beautiful and diverse. That you gave us taste buds. That food can be rich and enjoyable. We thank you for being satiated, Lord. We thank you for each and every meal we have, and we are mindful of those who go without. This morning we have with us Chris from Open Door Mission, and it's a reminder to us the things we take for granted, others count as a blessing. Father, help us to be people who think about food and drink, about what it's doing to us, what direction it's leading us into, whether it's leading us towards you or away from you, and help us to be mindful of those who are without, so that we could be a blessing to others. Hear our prayer this morning, and lead us into growth as the children of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.